It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Alexander Hamilton called the U.S. Supreme Court the weakest branch of government because it has no direct control over the military or budget. But the court's recent cluster of decisions has demonstrated that it can have an enormous impact on life in this country. Is the judiciary becoming more powerful and therefore more dangerous? I think this is the most extremist court, perhaps in the U.S. history. It's really the, among the top three most conservative courts in United States history, and indeed may be the most activist, or again, in the top three of the most activist Supreme Courts we've ever had. The court's latest rulings have touched on many hot-button issues, and each of these individually is worthy of a closer examination and explanation. By also looking at these decisions as a group, we can learn more about the broader thinking of this court and see where the justices might go next. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival. We'll hear from a panel of constitutional scholars and professors, Melissa Murray from NYU School of Law, Sharif Gurgis from the Notre Dame Law School, and Neil Katyal from Georgetown University. The conversation is moderated by law professor and writer Jeffrey Rosen, who is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. The event was held on Thursday, June 30th. Here's Rosen. What I want to do in this 45 minutes, and it's a very precious and important time, is as intensely and rigorously as possible have you understand the different perspectives on the major cases of this remarkable term and what they mean for the future. So, uh, Sharif, I'm going to begin with you. Um, uh, many have described this as an originalist constitution in which for the first time in history there's been a strong six-vote majority for the proposition that text and history should be the lodestar of all constitutional interpretation, and that means that many precedents in cases from abortion to guns to religion to the future of the administrative state and to affirmative action and election law must be overturned if they're inconsistent with text and original understanding. Is that a fair characterization or not? And how would you describe the scope and significance of the new originalist constitution? So I agree, first of all, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very grateful to be with both of these co-panelists who I think a ton of in each case and have learned a lot from uh, as a baby law professor. So um, I, I think the first part of what you said is accurate. So it is the most originalist, certainly the most self-identified originalist court that we've ever had. I do think as a practical matter, whether you think they're faithful to their methodology in every case or not, text and history are moving to the center of their analyses. I think they vary quite a bit on the second part of your question, so on the criteria for stare decisis, for the principle that precedent gets weight, and when should you be able to overturn precedent. I think they've spanned a spectrum, Justice Thomas, on one end of the spectrum, saying as soon as I've concluded, that the precedent is clearly erroneous as an original matter, I have to overturn it. That's my obligation to the Constitution. It's not to the Supreme Court precedent. To on the other side of the spectrum, Justice Kavanaugh and, just, and the Chief Justice who think, no, there are plenty of other considerations that go into the analysis and everyone else is, I think, in between. Thank you for that. And I hope you all heard the nuances of what Sharif said, that there's a disagreement among the conservative majority about when you should look to the original understanding, when you should look to subsequent uh, history, and exactly how to balance this new uh, methodology, which is rooted in text, history, and tradition. 
Melissa, before the last election, in September 2019, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic boldly called The Fourth Battle for the Constitution. And the premise was that there have been three big battles for the Constitution in American history, the founding, Reconstruction, and the New Deal, all had to do with the scope of federal power. And I said the stakes in the election were if President Trump won, there'd be a new originalist constitution, which would try to repeal the New Deal constitution and restore a uh, pre-1936 understanding of federal power. Um, now, as we know, just because Justice Ginsburg passed away, although President Trump lost the election, uh, he was able to achieve the majority that uh, an election would have otherwise guaranteed him. I, I, is that thesis right or overstated? And if it is right, what, what, what are the historic implications of the new originalist constitution? So I think you're, well, first, let me say it's great to be here. Thanks so much to the Aspen Institute for having us all here and convening this really important discussion at such an urgent time. I think the idea that there, this is a distinct epoch in the court's history is exactly right. Um, but the fact that there have been previous epochs suggests that there's been sort of a kind of oscillation. I don't know if we oscillate back to some kind of mean after this. Um, to me, I was asked yesterday if we'd ever seen a term like this, and I could not think of one in recent memory, certainly in my lifetime, but having been a student of history, having read about previous terms, it strikes me that this is not unlike the terms that preceded the Civil War. Um, when the Tawny Court decided Dred Scott thinking they were staving off a sectional conflict, but in fact, accelerating it. Um, it, it feels like we are really poised on the edge. And I'm not just thinking about the Dobbs decision. I think that has been the focus for so many of us. But if you zoom out from Dobbs, I don't know how you can think that this term wasn't the most extreme term in recent memory. We saw four cases dealing with questions of religious liberty. The fact that there were four of them tells you what it means to have a six to three conservative supermajority because before, when it was just a five to four court, I think they were much more careful about what they decided to take because they weren't sure where the fifth vote would come from. Now they are assured of five and they are being incredibly maximalist about what they take. And we are seeing this in so many different places. Abortion is one, guns is another, religious liberty is another, but also things like the administrative state. We had a major consequential decision today that will have really important ramifications for the government's ability to regulate industry. And, and it's not just about originalism. I mean, this is a court that professes fidelity to the text of statutes, but only when it suits them. I mean, it's textual-ish, not textualist. Right. So, you know, we had a Clean Air Act, but we can't deal, like, we can't actually regulate for clean air now because Congress hasn't explicitly, hasn't been super explicit about saying what the Clean Air Act should be about. So, difficult times. Uh, difficult times, and thank you for that excellent line. Te Textualist-ish uh, versus textualist is, is superb. Um, Neil, uh, Melissa raises the important question Will there be an oscillation back? And if there were four, three previous eras, um, they were broadly in line with public opinion. Uh, and when they weren't, uh, there were backlashes that forced a judicial retreat. This new originalist majority is almost defiantly indifferent to public opinion. How do you imagine it responding to 
any potential backlash, and how historically significant is the new originalist majority? So first of all, let me say it's so exciting to be with everyone in person again um, and to be here. And uh, particularly, I'm glad to be with Melissa. We're on TV like every night together, but we've never met in person. So this is really exciting. Um, You're so much taller. (laughs) (laughs) Handsomer, right, exactly. Um, So um, I want to begin by disagreeing with my friend Sharif and you, Jeff, when you call this the, uh, the most originalist court. I think this is the most extremist court, perhaps in U.S. history, certainly among the top three most conservative courts in United States history, and indeed may be the most activist, or again, in the top three of the most activist Supreme Courts we've ever had. You'd have to go back to 1935 or 1857 to really find a similar year. And we know what happened after both of those, uh, those years at the court. The safeguard that the Supreme Court has always had, I mean, this panel is called The Least Dangerous Branch. The greatest book on constitutional law written in the last hundred years was by Alexander Bickel, called The Least Dangerous Branch. The argument of the book was the court only has its legitimacy to enforce its judgments, and it does the most by not doing, by not hearing cases, by not deciding them aggressively. That's the way for it to protect its legitimacy with the American public. Uh, A beautiful, beautiful, eloquent description of what the Supreme Court's been doing for two centuries and the times when it strays, like 1935, the dramatic consequences. This court is the anti-Bickel United States Supreme Court. This is as anti that thesis as you can come up with. For this Supreme Court, it always goes to 11, as they say in in Spinal Tap. It is as aggressive as you can imagine. So take the Dobbs, the abortion decision. That was a case about a Mississippi law that was about a 15-week ban on abortion. What did the Supreme Court do with Justice Alito's opinion? Say, we're going to overrule Roe versus Wade entirely down to zero weeks. That wasn't even presented in the case. Take the arms, the, the gun case. You know, the Supreme Court for 15 years has been very careful not to wade into this uh, because, you know, they wanted to let the, the jurisprudence develop after they wrote a radical decision in 2008 that said individuals have a right to bear arms. Now they're gra- grabbing this case saying that you, everyone in America now has a right to a concealed carry of a firearm. Um, the greenhouse gas case. This one, which was decided today, literally this case was moot. The very, the industry, the, the regulation that the EPA wanted to impose was already being done by industry over the, over the entire country. There was no live dispute, but they go and they grab the case. Um, you know, they're, they're, they never pass up a chance with this new 6-3 supermajority to take a case. I mean, it's like, you know, the great living bard says, you know, why do you write like you're running out of time? These guys write like they're running out of time. They grab everything. Um, they just took the North Carolina redistricting case today, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but, you know, I think that this is, uh, you know, I love the court. It's my entire life. I've argued 45 cases there. Um, I respect it deeply. But this court is far out of step with the American mainstream. And Jeff, you asked what is, go- what is going to happen. I think it's going to be the subject of the 2024 election. I don't think President Biden is going to be running against Donald Trump. I don't think he's going to be running against Rick DeSantis. I think he'll be running against the United States Supreme Court. And, um, uh, and that is a, you know, that for, for people like me who, who worry about the court being in the political crosshairs, that is a scary prospect, but it's one that could have been avoided had these folks not reached out to decide all they decided. Thank you so much for that. 
Well, let's now dig in, if we can, to uh, the religion case to give our friends, our, uh, our colleagues, a sense of the arguments on both sides of them. Sharif, you heard Neil um, question the label the originalist constitution, which is that of the justices themselves. And this is the main critique of the liberal justices, that the um, conservatives are engaging in what uh, in, in faux originalism and basically are playing whack-a-mole with constitutional text and history and are changing the lens to suit their preferred results. So we have two big religion cases, um, the praying coach case where the court held that uh, Coach Kennedy who prayed on the 50-yard line um, and uh, invited students to join him was engaging in private prayer um, and changed the standard for whether or not there's a violation of church and state it used to be that there was a government endorsement of religion, and the new test is that there has to be uh, implicit or explicit coercion. And in the second case, the, Mac the Macon case from Maine, the court held that if Maine chooses to allow kids in rural areas where there are no public schools to have uh, vouchers to go to secular schools, they also have to subsidize religious schools. And once again, the liberal justices criticized them for opening the door to open funding of religious schools in a way that had been previously prohibited. Give us, if you can, these are complicated cases and not easily susceptible to sound bites, but the, the best, most condensed defense of why you believe the religion cases are consistent with the text and history of the First Amendment. Sure, so in the case of uh, Carson versus Macon, the court in a series of cases, including several, two I think that were seven to two, at least one that was seven to two, including Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, had said that if you're making a public benefit available to, in general, to people who meet certain general criteria, you cannot exclude a religious entity just because it's religious. So you can't exclude them because of religious status. So there's a case involving um, subsidies to, to refinish school playgrounds, and the court, seven to two, said you cannot deny that subsidy to um, a school run by a church, just because it's run by a church. That's discrimination based on religious status. In this case, the court said, we're going one step farther than that, but we still think it's within the free exercise clause. You can't, not only can you not discriminate based on the fact that the money is going to an institution that happens to be religious, you cannot base it on the fact that the institution in question is doing religious things. Um, that that is a discrimination uh, based on the free exercise of religion. The, the reason they're not getting the funds is that they're exercising their religion. And so if you're denying them that fund, you're discriminating based on the free exercise and that that, that violates the free exercise clause. In the second case, the, the praying coach case, I think a lot of the debate about that ended up being about which facts were relevant. And so it's a little tricky to talk about. We can talk about the complications if you want, but, but the court makes law, not facts. And so if you assume for a second the contested view of the facts that the majority had, which is that what the coach was disciplined for were three games in particular in October of 2015, where he prayed silently without asking his students to come, and, or his team, his team uh, players to come. And I think actually on those three occasions, though members of the other team came, members of his own team did not. Um, pr he prayed silently for a bit at the 50-yard line after the game was over and before, and during a period where he wasn't on duty in the sense that he could have been texting, he could have been talking to his spouse, he could have been doing something else. And the court said, merely private religious expression cannot be penalized 
um, and, it, and the penalizing of it cannot be justified by appeal to the idea that you're trying to avoid an establishment clause violation, because that would mean that, you could, that sc a school could tell a teacher, you, know, you can't make the sign of the cross uh, before, uh, you say grace before meals, you can't um, go do uh, prayer at certain, at given times of the day when you're off duty and so on. Thank you very much for that, uh, for really bringing those complicated facts in law together so clearly. Melissa, as Sharif says, the facts of the coach case were contested as Justice Sotomayor had a picture in her opinion of the coach praying surrounded by students and said far from engaging in private prayer on his own, he was both inviting and implicitly coercing uh, students to, to pray. And Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer in their dissents also said that both cases would have huge implications that the coach case would open the door to school prayer under some circumstances and that the Macon case would open the door to open subsidy of religious institutions. Tell us about the dissenting opinions in the religion cases. Sure. Um, in order to understand the dissenting opinions fully, I think you have to recognize that the First Amendment's religion clauses, there, there are two of them. Right, so there is the free exercise clause, which in both of these cases um, the court relied on. But there's also the establishment clause, which says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a particular religion. And for that, for that clause to have force, it means that state actors have to be very careful about whether or not they take steps that might be viewed as endorsing a particular religion. And so in both of these places, the state actors here, the school boards and the, the main legislature um, in administering this program of, of school vouchers, was really trying to avoid the prospect of violating the establishment clause by providing either a subsidy for religious instruction, including for religious schools that not only provided that instruction, but may also have been furthering religious doctrine that cut against state anti-discrimination doctrine, for example. Um, and then the case of Coach Kennedy, which might appear to endorse because it is a public government employee who is praying on the 50-yard line and inviting students um, to participate. And so in both of these cases, the court really expanded our understanding of what it means to have free exercise of religion without really acknowledging that these two clauses kind of work in tandem. So to expand one is necessarily to diminish the other. And so you know, we have seen the sort of tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, but I don't think we've ever seen the court try to wipe the Establishment Clause off the face of the Constitution, but I think we really got something approximating that, certainly in the praying coach case. So, you know, here, the dissents in both cases really talked about this question of the Establishment Clause. What are we going to do about the appearance of government endorsement of a particular religion when we live in a religiously plural society? And Justice Sotomayor, I mean, th this was a really sort of jarring opinion. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in a dissenting opinion. I mean, she, if you're someone who is on Twitter or social media, she essentially put this picture in her dissent and, and should have had the tagline, this you? Because she's asking the majority, <laughs> like, what do you mean he's not inviting students? What do you mean this is private prayer? He didn't do this in a closet. He didn't do this in his office. He did it on the 50-yard line. He invited state legislators to join. He invited students to join. And there were students who were atheists who did not feel that they were in a position to resist or to object or to decline. In the case of Carson versus Macon, she made another very pointed dissent where, and I think this was for the public, 
she noted that this is a standard move of this court. Sometimes they don't just blow everything out of the water as they did with Dobbs. Instead, what they do is chip away at things incrementally over time. So in 2017, it's about allowing a church to get access to a state program for resurfacing playgrounds. Then it's about allowing the state to subsidize some aspect of religious instruction. Now it's even further. And in each iteration, the court goes back and cites itself as evidence that there is a problem. And it's incredibly disingenuous. She notes this, they did the same thing in the case of public unions. And I think she wants us all to be on the lookout. This is the move. It is a standard incremental move until it isn't incremental at all. Thank you for that. Neil, in order to get as many cases as possible on the table, I'll ask you to talk about the climate change case, the EPA case that the court decided this morning, and tell us both what the reasoning of Chief Justice's major uh, Roberts's majority opinion was, uh, what, why the dissenters objected, and what the implications are for the future of the regulatory state. Yeah, so this was a six to three decision today, a very major decision. Um, so basically, in the Obama administration, you had something called the Clean Power Plan, which uh, regulated greenhouse gas emissions in power plants. And it went, the procedural posture is really complicated. You don't need to know all of that. But basically, folks challenged it by saying the EPA can't regulate these greenhouse gas emissions. And their reason was, and this was what the Chief Justice said in his opinion, major questions cannot be decided by an administrative agency. There has to be an express uh, authorization to the con from Congress to the agency to say, you can deal with this problem. So I guess calling it the, quote, environmental protection agency wasn't enough to let the court know that they were regulating environmental protection. But that's, the, what the, well, that's what the majority said. And as Justice Kagan said in her dissent, well, I might have been a little hasty in concluding that, quote, we're all textualists now, because they blew past its textualist-ish, to use uh, Professor Murray's um, phrase. And it really puts the justices in an awkward spot, because, look, a week ago they said we can't imply a right to an abortion in the Constitution. Now they're implying this entire new doctrine, the major questions doctrine, out of thin air. There's no textual basis for this. It is entirely made up. What do they cite for this? There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in the law. It's just as Professor Murray was saying, some of, its, some of their prior opinions, none of which, by the way, has ever said anything quite like this. So the result of it, you know, what the Supreme Court, what the Chief Justice said in his majority is, oh, just go to Congress, they'll, you know, if there's a problem, they'll fix it. This Congress? I mean, you know, you can't get them to agree on like anything besides daylight savings time, I think, being pushed back. So it's not a realistic solution to where we are in our society. And, you know, I, I understand we can pretend, you know, we could be like law professors, as all of us are, and write opinions that are beautiful and elegant and make internal coherent sense. But we also, you know, as a justice on the Supreme Court, your job is to be pragmatic and to understand how your decisions play out in real life. And it's ironic that, you know, today Justice Breyer uh, retired. He was a law professor, but what does he leave as his legacy on the Supreme Court? This idea of pragmatic interpretation, that you don't just, you know, live divorced from reality and just make an eloquent argument that your argument, that your, your decisions have real world consequences. And this is as profound a decision, you know, the EPA is now gutted 
from regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, maybe some private industry will, as I say, do this on their own. But that's, what we're, that's basically where we are right now. There's been all sorts of predictions already by experts, climate experts, that as a result of the Supreme Court decision, President Biden can't maintain his commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. Thank you for that uh, superb uh, description of this decision that came down this morning. That's fascinating about Justice Kagan's line. Justice Kagan had said we're all originalists now, years ago in the context of welcoming Justice Scalia who was being honored at Harvard Law School. And she credited Scalia for having changed the terms of debate so that liberals and conservatives embraced text as a touchstone. And as Neil suggests, now uh, Justice Kagan is arguing that the conservatives have changed the terms of debate and are now uh, using text in opportunistic ways to reach preferred results. Sharif, this is a, a big thing I'm asking you to do, but what, what is the conservative response in the context of the administrative state? Why do you believe that these decisions narrowing the ability of the federal government to regulate uh, the climate and the economy are consistent with text and history? And then, if that's not enough, put on the table the gun case, which, uh, which also is justified in the name of text and history. Tell us why you think the court was right to strike down the New York uh, open carry law. So on the first question, I actually I don't think the court was right in the EPA case, but, um, but I also think, so. I'll, but I'll give you the best case, I, or what I think is the best case. First, I think um, it's, it's an over-description to say it's, it's gutted, um, the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. The specific thing it addressed, as Neil said, it's pretty kind of technical and detailed. But the question was whether a particular authorization to create particular kinds of regulations allowed it to regulate only in a way that each site of generation of energy could deal with, or whether EPA had the authority to regulate in such a way that it would force shifting the form of generation of energy. Basically, could it regulate just each generation plant on its own, or could it regulate in a way that forced a plant to, to create less of fossil fuel-based um, uh, energy and more of solar or wind or other forms of energy? And what the court said was that we have this general idea, which they pitch as a way of figuring out what a statute meant. They say, look, if a statute gives the agency the ability to do X, but, and the agency says, oh, X means I get to do this huge thing that has huge economic and social significance, then we will assume that the agency is wrong about that unless Congress was really specific. And why is that supposed to be a good guide to the original meaning of the text? Well, the thought is, as the saying goes, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. It doesn't take a huge power and tuck it away quietly in passing in an authorization to the, to the agency that looks like it's about something else. And what the, what the court said is that that's what had happened in this case. That you have this thing that looks like it's just telling you you gotta put in certain filters and you gotta have, meet certain specs, and suddenly the agency is interpreting it in such a way that it authorizes basically a whole shift, the EPA to force a whole shift in the industry from one form of uh, energy production to another. That's the big thing that they said um, Congress could not have hidden in this, in this technical provision in passing. Um, again, I disagree with that analysis, but that's the, that's the case for it. You, you know what, this is so important that why don't you tell us why you disagree with it and more broadly where the court's administrative state jurisprudence is going. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> The reason I, dis I, I guess I, the reason I tentatively disagree with it and the reason I say tentative is that 
It could turn out that if I knew more about um, EPA and the Clean Air Act and all these regulations, um, there would be an answer to this objection. Is that I don't, it's not obvious to me that it was obvious at the time that this would turn out to be a really big deal. In other words, it could be that Congress at the time, you'd ask them, oh, are you, are you authorizing just on-site regulations or regulations that cross the fence into other plants or that force a shift of some kind? It would not have been obvious at the time that that power could be used in a way that would basically reduce um, fossil fuel production and require a, a shift across the industry. And if it wasn't clear at the time, then you can't say that this, is a, this rule is a guide to the original meaning at the time. Because Congress could have meant that, because they didn't think it was going to be a big deal. So why would they have said something big? A, fr a friend of mine, Ben Idelson, uh, sort of develops this argument on, on Twitter in a question that gets picked up by Justice Kagan, and I was convinced by it. In general, the move of the, um, of the court on the administrative state is to go, at a, at a broad level, they think, here's what's happened. We had this system of government with checks and balances where it was really, really important that Congress, the electorally accountable group, was the one that made the big policy calls so that if you don't like the policy, you can vote them out. But increasingly, Congress has given super broad delegations to the agencies and said, uh, just regulate in the public interest uh, and so on that shifts blame and responsibility to the agency, which we have less direct control over as voters, and they think that's an unlawful delegation, or at least several of them seem to think that's unlawful, that's Congress giving away power, it does not have the authority to give away in a way that disrupts the structure of our government. And for that reason, it's looking to, to narrowly construe delegations of congressional power to the agencies wherever it can, and that, this doctrine fits into that as well. Thank you for that. Melissa, you heard Sharif disagree with the court about the application of its construction of this major questions doctrine in the EBA case, but broadly to support a textualist approach. Justice Kagan was more direct in a recent case called Gundy. She says the court's approach means the end of the administrative state. Tell us what her fear is about the court striking down the administrative state and whether you agree with it. So I, I do agree with Justice Kagan on this front because the work of government cannot necessarily be left entirely to Congress. Congress is a broad, sclerotic, we know this, institution. Um, it's hard to get them to do anything. It's even hard to get them to do things that really require expertise. I mean, there's a reason why we have allowed Congress to delegate some of its authority to administrative agencies, and it's not an unfettered delegation. The Congress has to make clear to the agency what the scope of the delegation encompasses and how they are to use their authority. But the whole idea of delegation recognizes that there are some things that, although Congress is politically accountable, so is the administrative state. It's part of the executive, but through the executive, it is politically accountable, and it often has more expertise. So imagine the prospect of having to go to Congress to get your passport. Right? Imagine having to go to Congress to apply for an immigration visa. Imagine if Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing environmental policy. I mean, that's what Justice Kagan means. Like, the work of government has really become part of the work of these administrative agencies, at least till, till the New Deal. And this really links up to something that Neil has said and relates to the overarching theme of this. Has the court become the most dangerous branch? I don't think we appreciate as a society how the court is, has become a means and, and it has been recognized as a means 
for enacting minoritarian will. Right? We live in a society right now that is increasingly polarized. Congress is increasingly polarized. It's very hard for Congress to do anything. It also is very hard for the president to act um, using executive authority because so much of executive power can be limited by the court. But it means that the gridlock in both of these other constitutional actors opens up a wide window for the court to be the way to either thwart your opponent's domestic agenda or to advance your own. Right? So we saw with the Affordable Care Act that John McCain voted thumbs down. The Trump administration could not repeal the Affordable Care Act through an act of Congress. So what they immediately did was file a case in a Texas district court to do just that, using the court to accomplish what they could not do through majoritarian politics. And that's where we are today. The court has become a way to advance your own domestic agenda or to thwart your opponents. Wow, uh, strongly put. Uh, Neil, what do you make of Melissa's uh, strong suggestion that the court has become an engine for enacting minoritarian will? And as an example, uh, please tell us about the case the court just took today, which you are going to argue next term involving the independent state legislature doctrine out of North Carolina and what the implications that for that could be for the next presidential election. So I agree with Melissa that um, the court has become an anti-majoritarian force. Let's just take the case that they decided last week on gun control and concealed carry. I mean, this is not an originalist court. This isn't even an originalist-ish court. I mean, this is a faux originalist court. Um, you know, I spent two years researching this history and defending Hawaii's uh, gun law, for, which has been around since 1852. And, you know, historian after historian agrees when you go back to the early statutes, like the statute of Northampton in 1305 and, you know, subsequent ones, you know, it is very, very hard to say that the right of a legislature to protect its people in this way can be taken away, that that's included in the right to bear arms, that there's a right to either open carrying or concealed carrying of firearms. And we won this in, the, in a very conservative decision uh, in the Ninth Circuit, in a seven to four decision written by Jay Bybee. It's like 200 pages long. Jay Bybee is one of the most conservative judges, but he goes through all this history and says, it doesn't mean what the NRA thinks it means. It doesn't mean what the Republicans who are filing these cases think it means. It actually permits a wide range of government regulation in this space. But what does the Supreme Court say? They say, well, this is too important. We need to take this decision away from the state legislatures so they can't enact these statutes uh, to pro prohibit concealed carrying of firearms. It's a constitutional right. What do they say literally the next day in the Dobbs case about abortion? Oh, we're gonna give this to the states and the legislatures and the people. I mean, it's fundamentally inconsistent. There's no right to concealed carry in the Constitution. That is what they are interpreting it to be. And so I really do worry about the use of history. It feels like a smokescreen. It feels like some of the justices are looking out at a crowd, picking their friends and see a little piece of history here and a little piece of history there, and they cobble together a Supreme Court decision that literally, as Melissa says, takes the decision away from the American people. You can now live in a state like New York where, let's suppose, 99% of people wanted this gun control regulation. I know that's not what it is, but just this demonstrates Melissa's point. The Supreme Court has said you can't have that law anymore. It's off the books. It's unconstitutional. 
So um, this North Carolina case, which the court took today, I don't know that I'm arguing, but I'm lead counsel for, for, one, one, uh, for one group of challengers. Basically, this involves the question of, and it was at play in the 2020 election very much, uh, whether or not state, state courts have any role to play in interpreting their own election statutes, you know, voter protection and you know, who mail-in ballots, all that stuff. It, does the Constitution forbid state courts from being involved in the process? Um, if they win this, a lot of the decisions, you've heard about the 62 decisions that went against Donald Trump, many of them were in state courts. All those decisions would now be nullified. This is part of an anti, another anti-majoritarian project to basically say, state courts, you're out of the system. Only state legislatures, which the Republicans have put a lot of time and effort in over the last 25 years, they get to call all the shots. It's the first time, really, the state courts have been excluded from our system. The idea that our founders would have done that is, to put it mildly, ahistorical. The idea that they would say, oh, you know, this law that you passed in North Carolina or any of the 49 states on elections, the state courts have no business deciding whether it's unconstitutional or violates the state statutes or anything like that. They're entirely cut out of the process. That is not America. Might be Russia. I don't know, but it's not our system. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be briefing that argument um, and we'll argue it in the fall. And, you know, we, we very much hope that the Supreme Court sees the error of thinking that this is something enshrined in the Constitution. There's a lot of stuff that they seem to be finding in the Constitution these days that just ain't there. Thanks for that. Um, Sh uh, Sharif, this is, you're, you're playing a crucial role here in defending the conservative majority's use of text and history, but you've just heard Neil um, question it uh, about the Second Amendment. Tell us why you think that the Bruin case, which uh, held that New York's concealed carry law was unconstitutional is consistent with the text history of the Second Amendment and, and more broadly any other responses that you have to Neil and Melissa who are repeatedly accusing the conservative majority of faux originalism. Sure, so it, take, take the Bruin case first, the guns rights case. It's based partly on a 2008 case, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, where the court recognized an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. So it said that the Second Amendment grants not just a right to protect state militias, but a right to keep and bear arms for your own personal defense. It's an individual right. There's a great battle over the original meaning of the clause between Justice Scalia in the majority and Justice Stevens in the dissent. I personally think that battle is a close battle on the original meaning. I think the prefatory clause is a, the strongest strike against Justice Scalia. He says that clause, which talks about militia, is just telling you the reason they're creating the right. It's not limiting the scope of the right. Um, but I think some of the treatises and other um, con contextual evidence does provide some support for an individual right. By the time the 14th Amendment comes around, which is what applies the Second Amendment to the states, and that's the amendment that's being interpreted in Bruin, which is a case against New York. You have very pro, very progressive, and, I, and not personally pro-gun scholars, like Akhil Amar at Yale, like Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, the leading 
uh, liberal constitutional scholar of his generation, saying actually there is a good case that by the time the 14th Amendment came for the protection of minorities, especially African Americans, recently freed slaves and others, this was understood to be incorporating an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Now get to what the Bruin case was about. So let's assume that Akhil Amar and Lawrence Tribe are right about that. Now you get to the case, and what is the case about? The case is about assuming that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Is it okay for the state to say, you have to have an above average need for self-defense? It can't just be that you, you have the sort of, you're an ordinary law-abiding, it's a right for all law-abiding citizens, but you have to have an extra special reason to exercise this right. And the court simply says, we don't do that with any other right. Um, we can't do that here, it's inconsistent with the history and so on. Now what about the tension between Bruin and Dobbs? What, how, how can Bruin, you know, on one day the court says, states have no power to regulate this right away. By the way, 46 of the states don't violate the rule that Bruin sets down. Uh, only six or seven of, uh, four, 43 of the states don't, six, six or seven of them do, depending on how you count. So it's not, it's not striking down concealed carry regulations across the board. But what's the difference between that and Dobbs? And the difference is that in the Bruin case, they are applying a constitutional right. What some progressive scholars agree by the time of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment is a constitutional right, it's there in the text. And in Dobbs, they're saying if there is no right in the text and there's no deeply rooted right in the history, then the states are free to regulate. That's the key difference. And, and just to make it vivid with, with 15 more seconds, the, the situation for, the, for Dobbs to be like Bruin, the case in Bruin would have to go like this. It has to be the case that for 700 years plus, from, 1200, from the year 1200 till 1960, not a single case in England, not a single case in the states or, or federal courts in the US, not a single statute, not a single legal treatise, not even a law review article going out on a limb had ever suggested that there was a right to keep and bear arms. No, there's no textual basis for the right. On the contrary, at all times at the common law and everywhere in the states at the time that this decision comes down, there's massive criminalization of keeping and bearing arms for self-defense, and the court comes in and says, all 50 states' laws are unconstitutional because even though there's no text, there's no history, all of the history is uniformly against, we think that liberty, on our understanding of liberty, requires a right to keep and bear arms. Then Dobbs and Bruin would be on all fours with each other. Thank you very much for that. There's just two minutes left in this really powerful and important, ah, uh, indeed, uh, we, um, discussion. So I think I'm just going to um, invite Melissa to give closing thoughts. We're going to let the audience. Well, the, the questions are so good. We, we can take one audience question, but why don't you have it to Melissa and please ask her to give closing thoughts if you would. <laughs> yes, sir. What's the solution? Well, that's a good question. Good question. Um, I'll ask, why don't we ask Melissa and Neil, um, what's the solution, uh, as briefly as possible? So, I mean, I, I think there are solutions that can be done on the individual level, and you know, the first one is to vote, to register your objections at the ballot box, recognizing that this court has probably done as much as any court in history to dismantle and hobble the infrastructure of democracy, recognizing that we are going to be voting in successive elections for these issues. And we may not win 
immediately. It may take a while. This is exactly how the conservative legal movement played it. They voted. They got David Souter. They didn't give up. They got Anthony Kennedy. They didn't give up. They got Sandra Day O'Connor. They didn't give up. And finally, they got Brett Kavanaugh. They got Samuel Leader. They got John Roberts. On and on and on. They didn't give up. We can't give up on voting. We have to stay in it. We have to limber up and pack a lunch because it's going to be a while. And I think we have to think seriously about whether or not structural reforms, I'm not just talking about court packing, but legitimately thinking about are there certain things this court should not be deciding? Jurisdiction stripping. Should we be thinking about term limits for justices so that the confirmation battle isn't as fraught every single time? The applause are uh, notable, and I'll, and I'll just share that uh, the National Constitution Center recently convened teams of conservative, liberal, and libertarian scholars to propose a constitutional amendment, and the conservative and the progressive teams agreed on the wisdom of a term limits for justice agreement. It was very striking. Neil, the last word in this powerful discussion is to you. What's the solution? Um, you know, I'm an optimistic guy, but it's hard to be optimistic at this point. Most of the structural solutions, whether it's court packing or jurisdiction stripping, require a vote in Congress by the House and Senate and a filibuster-proof one to do that. And Republicans are not going to do that because they've got their candy at the Supreme Court right now. They don't want to give that up. So I don't think that structural solutions right now are the way to go. I think the only thing that can be done is what Melissa's saying, which is vote, vote, vote. I you know, detest people who say elections don't matter because everything we've been talking about for the last hour is because of these elections that put certain people into power. And um, you know, the Republican Party didn't hide it. Their platform for 50 years was overturn Roe versus Wade. They worked exactly the way Melissa said to do that. And now it's up to us to do the same thing back and get the Constitution back for the American people. Well, I will, um, b before inviting you to uh, thank our panelists once again, say that uh, one more solution is for you, the people, and Aspen friends, and citizens, and people around the world, to educate yourselves just the way you've done today, and to take the time to read the Supreme Court decisions, read the majority opinions, the concurrences, and the dissents. You can do it. You do not have to be a lawyer. And then you will evaluate the complicated arguments on both sides that you've been hearing today, and you will be in a better position to criticize or defend the decisions, to uh, vote in an informed way, and to exercise your responsibilities as citizens. And for, doing, for helping us do exactly that, please join me in thanking our great panelists. Neil Katyal is the Paul and Patricia Saunders Professor of Law at Georgetown University and a partner at Hogan Lovell's law firm. He was previously U.S. Acting Solicitor General, and he has argued 45 cases before the Supreme Court. Melissa Murray is the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU Law School, where she teaches constitutional law, family law, criminal law, and reproductive rights and justice. Her writing has appeared in the Harvard Law Review, the Yale Law Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, among others. Sharif Gurgis is an Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School. Before that, he practiced law at Jones Day in Washington, D.C., focusing on appellate and complex civil litigation, and was a law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. J. 
Jeffrey Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and a professor at George Washington University Law School. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a former staff writer for The New Yorker. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.